I'm Gwyneth Paltrow, and you're listening to The Goop Podcast, made possible by our friends at Bowl and Branch. Sleep hygiene and its impact on our health is a popular topic at Goop HQ. Luckily, Bowl and Branch is on the same page. Their pure organic cotton sheets are fair trade certified, meaning everyone involved in the supply chain, from their farmers to the factory workers, has been treated fairly. And because they are GOT certified, the highest certification in organic cotton farming and production, their sheets don't have any of the skin irritating chemicals found in conventional cotton products. I love sleeping on them and actually just bought a set for my daughter, Apple. <laughs> the sheets are incredibly soft and only get softer the longer you have them. For $50 off your first set, head over to bowlandbranch.com and use promo code GOOP. I am beyond, beyond excited to be launching the first episode of the Goop podcast with one of my heroes, who not coincidentally happens to be a lot of people's hero, Oprah Winfrey. I believe that fundamentally we are all the same. I had to pinch myself a few times during our conversation, talking to Oprah about all the ways she has pushed and continues to push boundaries in her career and life. Don't hold anything too tightly. Just wish for it, want it, let it come from the intention of real truth for you, and then let it go. And if it's supposed to be yours, it will show up and it won't show up until you stop holding it so tightly. As a philanthropist, talk show host, producer, actor, go see her in A Wrinkle in Time, mentor and modern thought leader, Oprah has been instrumental in breaking open old paradigms and paving the way for new voices, ideas, and movements. I'm so incredibly grateful for the chance to sit down with her and continue to learn from her. Here she is, Oprah. I'll try not to run the show. No, you can run the show. If you didn't Actually, run the- that is a very big misconception. Really? It is not true. Who do you like to run everything? I like to surround myself with people who can run things so that I can be free to be with my thoughts. How have you gotten there? Because I really do think that to be able to continue to expand and to create, you do need time. You can't do it without time. How did you get there? Was there a period of time where you felt that you needed to do everything yourself? Yes, including booking the guests and uh, on the Oprah show when I first started. And then I realized... I'm really terrible at this. But it was really important to me in the beginning to do every job so that I would understand what other people were doing. And obviously I couldn't do, you know, the videotape room. I did know editing because when I first started out in television, the very first day I was sent out on assignment, I was asked if I could edit, even though I couldn't, I said I could. And then I went to people and said, you got to show me how to edit this. This is back in the old days where they were using Bell and Howell film and you had to go in the room and actually cut the little uh, pieces of film. And so I would say that the, the, the power of my being able to move forward has been based on me paying attention and Maya Angelou used to say to me all the time, babe, you are where you are because you are obedient to the call. And she would understand. She said, and even when I tell you things, I like the way you listen and then decide for yourself whether it is for you. 
And I've been doing that a very long time, but I actually learned I wasn't just a talk show. I was also a listening show. So I feel, Gwyneth, at this particular time in my life that all of that listening has come to fill a, a space of knowing for me that I would not had had I not actually listened. So probably you've heard me say over the years, there was a time where I made the shift from it being a show to it being a ministry and it being just an expression of myself to the world. And that shift, that ability for me to offer every day, whether it was Tom Cruise or Brad Pitt or <laughs> a woman who'd lost everything she owned because her husband kicked her out of the house or victims of abuse, domestic violence, kids, whatever the subject, I was able to find the thread of hope in it. I was able to find what is the, th the thing that's going to connect to the audience. I'm always looking for what is the thing? How is what you're saying going to resonate with the people who are listening? Because I believe that fundamentally we are all the same. And that that's why when you go to a movie and you cry and you experience joy or you have any kind of reaction, what I started calling aha moments, the ahas are, it's a, it's a vibrational frequency that's touching what's already there. That's what makes you go, ah, aha, aha, I knew that. I just wasn't able to express it in that way. Aha, that feels familiar. That, that sounds right. That feels like the truth to me. That's what an aha is. It's a remembering. It's a resonance. It's a resonance. And then it's a remembering of what you always, always knew. And do you find, especially in, when you were in your position in the show, that that's what people really, I feel like so many people don't have the tools to connect to those aha moments. They don't, they sort of are doing their thing. They're busy, they're head down and they're, especially then I feel like now we're more in the culture, more open to spirituality and more open to resonance and open to open-mindedness. Mm -hmm. But I feel, especially during the eighties and nineties, there was more doing than being. And I feel like part of the thing that you did was sort of introduce in a way this spirituality. I feel that we did too. And I think it's exciting to me that it's catching up to what I knew and believed it could be. But when I first started talking about spirituality, <laughs> remembering your spirit, we had a little segment on called remembering your spirit, because I was just trying to give people little doses right. of it. And I remember doing a show with Carolyn Mace, who wrote The Anatomy of Spirit. And in the middle of that show, I'm watching the audience and I use the audience to gauge the larger world audience. And I can tell who's listening, who's not listening. And the, I could tell the people who just zoned out. And so I stopped the show, stopped the taping and said, hey, 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 are you still with us? And woman stood up and said, no, I'm, no, we're not. What are you talking about, spirit? This was 92. Wow. And I said, well, you know, mind, body, spirit, right? She goes, I... I said, you know, you have a mind, right? You have a body and you have a spirit. And she goes, well, I know I have a mind, I have a body, but what are you talking about spirit in 1992? 
Wow. And we're talking about the anatomy of spirit. People don't know what spirit is. And so she, and then somebody else said, are you talking about Jesus Christ? Are you talking about the disciples? Are you talking about the Bible? What are you talking about? No, I said, I'm talking about the part of you that is your essence, that is like your soul, that is the part that never dies, that is. And so we got to start from ground zero to explain what the word spirit means. So now we're a long way from that. But I will say that the show, the Oprah show, was a part of opening up that aperture to talk about it in a way that's not so woo-woo. And of course, when you are pioneering anything or introducing new ideas to the culture, you get criticized. You do? Yeah. Did you hear about that? (laughs) That people are resistant to anything that removes them from their current way of thinking. Why? Because it means that I have to let go of who I think I am and make room for the possibility of something else. So it's threatening. Yeah. It feels, it feels threatening. And also like I'm used to doing things the way I've been doing it. And then if I have to change my belief, if I have to believe, which is, which is the thing that is fundamentally disruptive to people, if I have to change what I believe, then it means that I may not be who I think I am because I've based who I think I am on a belief system. So if you're asking me to, uh, I remember like simple things that aren't so simple, that have life-changing impact on a, a family. I used to always do these shows about not hitting your kids and sp- is spanking okay? So in the 80s, we were still having that discussion. Is it okay to spank your kids? And I remember a major moment with a viewer in a grocery store saying to me, you changed my life. And I used to just say, oh, okay, thank you. And then I started stopping to pay attention to what that really meant. Because when somebody says to you, you changed my life, that's a major thing. So I said, tell me how. She said, well, I used to beat my kids. I used to beat my kids. And I, I, I used to hear you talk about Every time you're on TV, you talk about don't beat your kids, don't beat your kids. And I said, how are you going to have good kids? You don't beat them. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> and so she said, I decided one day I'm going to just see. I'm going to see. I'm going to try this for one week. I'm not going to hit my kids. She said, so I did not hit my son for a week. And then I tried it another week and I didn't hit my son. And then she said, you know, It's been weeks now and I haven't hit my son and I have a different son and I am a different mother. And she said, it's not because the first time you said it, it's because you were consistent. You were consistent every time you said it. So a little change like that, look at the impact that has on that son, on that mother, on that family. And I recognized by paying attention to that, that it's the little things that turn into big things and make major changes in people's lives. I mean, that's a, that's a powerful thing that, that happened because I was consistent. So I started, that was a lesson to me and I pay attention to that. And it's important to me to remain consistent in my ideas and consistent in what, whatever it is I'm trying to, to, to offer. But it was a, that was a, that was a life-changing moment for me, hearing her getting that kind of feedback from someone. And how do you 
hold being that person in the world? Well, I think we are all that person in the world. The difference is through the platform of that show and and also now who I am in the world, I have access to more people. But one of the things I said when I was ending the show, everybody has their own platform. Everybody has their own platform and their level of influence. I recognize that I am a big soul. And the way you know if you're a big soul, your 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 soul's in influence is in direct proportion to the amount of people you're able to affect. Interesting. Yeah. So that means I'm a big soul. There are smaller souls that are also equally as powerful in their field. Just because you can't reach a lot of people doesn't mean that you don't have the same impact on the people that you are reaching. So I think I value knowing that, that it's not just, I don't think of myself as a personality as much as I think of myself as a a being in personality form that has come to affect and to influence through through my own own, own expression. That's what, that's what I think. But I think everybody has that. One of the other things, um, if I were to do a book, which I keep thinking I might, and then I think, oh, it's too hard, and now I have to talk about my parents. I don't want to. You're do definitely that. doing it, a book. Uh, so I keep doing <laughs> pieces of books. You know what I know for sure, and you know, wisdom of Sundays and pieces of things. But it, it would be about these great lessons I learned from listening. I just learned so much from listening. You know, I never had a day of therapy, but. I had multiple days of therapy by listening, 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 and trying to not um, repeat mistakes that I had had conversations about and in many ways embodied. You know, for a long time, I was taking it in to the point where I was making myself ill. I had to find a way to shield myself from other people's energy, protect myself from it, and not take everything in, and also, but also be able to listen. And how did you do that? I started a practice in the elevator. First of all, I started meditating. And then I started what kind? a uh, trans- transcendental meditation. And What's your mantra? I'm uh, just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, but I do all forms. And, you know, the greatest meditation for me is actually living. Eckhart Tolle told me this. If you never meditate in your life, that being able to live in the present moment is the greatest form of it. When you can just be fully present. So I started in the elevator going down to do my show, having like a moment of covering myself in light, physically having that visualization of covering myself in light so that I was protected from, you know, any harm. And also opening myself up to be a vessel that was bigger than my personality so that whatever I said would come from a place of respect and honor, intention and love. And in in a way that people could feel that. And so one of the biggest changes for me was um, around 89, 90, I read Zukov's book and Gary Zukov, and it was the principle of intention that actually changed my life forever. I need to get this book. Forever. So he has two chapters actually on intention. So if I were to say I was brought up Christian, I believe in the Christian philosophy, but my true religion is the golden rule, which is 
born of the third law of motion in physics, which says what you put out is coming back all the time. Um, for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. So Zukov talked about this in um, Seed of the Soul. He also talked about this principle of intention that exists in all ways before there even is a cause or an effect. There is an intention that creates the cause. You have a reason for wanting to do things. What is the true reason? What is the pure truth of the reason why you're doing a thing? And if you look at what the intention is in every circumstance in your life, the, in, the energy of the intention that comes before the cause, which is automatically going to create an effect, the intention is what actually creates the effect. It is the motivation behind the reason you do the thing that creates the effect. So if it's coming from a place of lack or fear, that is going to show up in the effect. And so if you, and I use this for everything in my life, when I got it, I stopped saying yes when I meant no. I stopped going to places I didn't really want to be. I stopped doing things for people I really didn't want to do. Because what happens is, I used to have the disease to please. What happens is if you continue to say yes, because you want the people to think, I want them to think I'm nice. I don't want them to think that I've got a big head. I don't want them to think, I want them to think. That's exactly what they think. They think you're nice. They think you meant what you said. And that's why they come back. I couldn't understand why. I would loan people money. I would do things for them. I would show up for the da-da-da. And then they're asking again. Why are they asking me again? I just did it. They're asking you again because your intention was to make them think it's okay to ask me. So I'm your, I can be your doormat because I'm, you can ask me at the last minute. You can, I can show up for you. I'm going to do it. And so when I started just doing things based upon what is my intention? So what actually changed me with it? The very first time I got the principle, I used it in my own life to say no to someone really important who'd asked me to do something. And I thought normally I would have said yes, because I wouldn't want that person mad at me. And then I just said, no, I'm not going to do that. It was a benefit. Wanted me to show up. Stevie Wonder. I'm not going to do that. Sorry, I can't do that. And he just said, okay. I was stunned. I thought it was going to be this, this big, long negotiation. That he just said no. And saying no is a, is a, is, has been a big thing in my life. It's a constant. I mean, I just recently was, it was in an instance where somebody was asking me to do a benefit for them that I didn't want to do. They wanted me to be um, honorary chair. You know, you get the honorary chairs. I don't, I don't put my name on anything that I am not actually involved with. So if you see my name there, it means I did something. Right. And I don't show up unless I feel like this is where I want to be. And so the person was saying, well, why wouldn't you do it? And other than you must love the children. I get that you love the children and it's for the children. <laughs> I guess, uh, yes, I do love the children and I'm taking care of a lot of children, but I don't want to do that. And I actually had to just say, why can't you hear the no? Right. Why can't you hear the no? Which I wouldn't have been able to do years ago. I would have been, I would have just done it so that person would not be mad at me. Right. Yeah. I think so many of us, especially women suffer from that. I mean, we all have the disease to please. I certainly do. It's something that I'm really trying to focus on working on mm -hmm. at this stage in my life, because, you know, on the one hand, I feel the freedom of saying no and drawing a boundary. And on the other hand, I still so worry about hurting people's feelings mm -hmm. and not being what 
they thought I was, et cetera. So how do you, what is the practice to get there? Well, what you want is you want to get this principle of intention so that everything that you bring to everything you do comes from a strong, uh, I, I talk about frequencies and vibrations all the time because I think that's what we all are. I think everything is, you know, the trees, the grass, the, and that you are emanating a kind of energy from you that draws to you like energy. And so you want that energy, your frequency, to be the strongest. You know, when I finally said yes, I didn't say yes to doing this interview until I could say a full 100% yes. I don't want part of me to be sitting in the chair, part of me to be here and another part to be, ah, I should have done that or I should be doing this. Or I wanted to say when I can fully say yes and do it from a space that makes me feel good and not just you feel good. Right. Even though you were really persistent. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's no other first interview I could have besides you. <laughs> oh, there's lots of them. <laughs> no, but, there's not. But you got me with, uh, <laughs> you're good, Gwyneth. You're good. That's good. God, I'm not even Catholic and I knew how to guilt you. <laughs> yes, but I thought, okay, what would be a reason for me to do it? So, And what was it? First of all, it's your first. And I remember when I was trying to do my very first show, how hard it was to get a first. And we were like bribing Don Johnson because <laughs> <laughs> uh, he was doing Miami Vice at the time. We were like doing everything. <laughs> it's so hard to get that first. I've been there with, 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 with that first. And also I was thinking, okay, what would I talk about that I haven't said before? And, um, you know, then I thought, well, I'm really proud of uh, what Ava DuVernay has done with Wrinkle. And, you know, this is a big moment for Storm. I can talk talk about them and we could talk about what's going on with the women in, the, you know, in the Me Too. But we, there are lots of things we can talk about that I thought would be interesting for Goop. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> for Goop. And also, you know, I ran into you at a party recently and yeah. I was coming off like a spate of people beating me up for talking about whatever, you know, mm -hmm. alternative medicine. Mm -hmm. And you were so encouraging about staying the course and believing in myself. Anytime you speak alternative, people are like, what, what does that mean? It's true. I got so beat up. I got so beat up with people saying, oh, now it's the church of Oprah. And now, it is, by the way. <laughs> no, and it's the Church of Oprah. And you're it. trying to start your own religion. <laughs> what are you doing? And what are you talking about? Spirit. And I just stayed the course. What I realized was, and Marianne told me this, you know, I used to be such a, a zealot for things like, you've got to get this, you know, you've got to know this. Oh my gosh, you got to know this. And I realized the year we, because every year I decided that I had said to my team, we are our greatest competition. There is no competition other than yourself. Don't worry about what the other guy is doing. You waste energy. You take energy away from yourself, even if you're in a race, to turn around and see where the other guy is. I agree. You. So just focus on what you can do because you can't beat them at their race. You can only win your own. Mm -hmm. So... During all of those years, every time there'd be another show that would come out, my staff would go, oh, my God, Geraldo Rivera. Oh, my God, Ricky Lake. Oh, my God. You know, I think there were 147 some talk shows that came up again. And after a while, you just learn, they learned, focus, 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 focus on what it is you want 
you can do, do that better the, to the very best of your ability. And because um, you, can, you can't be what somebody else is. So to answer your other question about how do you, how do you get there? Years ago, so I have, an, I have a story for everything because I used to listen to stories for 25 years. One of the most impressive ones was a woman who had, her son had died of either cancer or AIDS. I don't remember, but she climbed into bed with him as he was taking his last breath. And she said his last words that she could barely hear only because she was lying against his chest. She, he said, oh, mom. It was all so simple. It's so simple, Mom. Closed his eyes and died. Jesus. And I got chills when I heard it. You know, it's one of those things that resonates as an aha. I said, yeah, we're making it all so complicated. And it's really all so simple. So that was also a big life-changing moment for me. I go, how, how am I making it more complicated than it needs to be. How can I, you know, slow down, pay attention and see the simplicity in things and sort of follow these laws that I've come to know to be true. The universal language that all human beings and all of nature is speaking. How can I do that? And so when I started to, to practice actually what I know to be true, so I would say that to everyone who's listening to us right now, you already know, and you may have goop as a guide or, you know, inspiration, but the reason why you're drawn to that, the reason why people are drawn to those inspirations is because there is something there that is yearning to remember, is yearning to be reminded. That's beautifully said. of, of, Of the beauty that you hold of the experiences and adventures you want to share, of the, 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 the love you want to offer, the expression you want to give. And so what Goop does is remind you in physical form, in uh, tangible ways, and in non-tangible ways of pieces of yourself that are beautiful and that want to aspire to, to the best. And, you know, who, who wants to criticize that? Who, who, we're all just trying to reach for the highest, truest expression of ourselves as human beings. That's the commonality that we share. And the thing that I know, whether I meet, you know, someone on Skid Row or meet someone, you know, sitting in a billionaire's club, that that person is they want the same thing I want. And that is to be able to have what is the fullest, truest expression of myself as a human being. And how do you do that? You know, you can't get there without practice. Being connected to the essence of yourself, to the source of your creation is like developing a spiritual muscle. And it does not happen if you're just running around all the time. So just like you bathe, to stay clean. (laughs) And just like you're going to wash your hair and you're going to brush your teeth. And there are practices that keep yourself healthy and viable. There are also spiritual practices that do the same. Transcendental meditation is one of them. It is one of the practices. But for me, it's 
a conscious working model to stay fully present here and now. And I practice it. If I'm at the sink, I'm putting a cup in the sink. I'm walking down the stairs. I'm walking up the stairs. I am in that moment conscious of my hand is on the railing. Gee, one foot is in front of the other. Wow, my legs are moving every day. This has happened for all the years of my life. I can't believe my body's still functioning this way. Isn't this great? I'm in the, I'm, I'm, I, as I said to you earlier, I thanks for all my goop products for bath. <laughs> Bathing is my hobby. I'm putting the bath salts in the water. I'm lighting the candle. I'm aware of that. I'm fully just there. I'm just there. I'm experiencing the water. My tub happens to sit in a place where I get to see the ocean. So I was in, in the water looking at the white caps on the ocean and like, wow, every part of it is beauty to me, brings a little piece of joy and, you know, helps, helps my, my, my frequency. So I'm doing that all the time. I'm doing that even if something shows up that is uncomfortable you know who taught me that is Maya Angelou, because I lived as you have lived every other week in the tabloids. And I was always glad when you were on. <laughs> take the heat <laughs> off take you. Take the heat off me. Thanks. I'm glad somebody <laughs> else is on it. Glad when oh God, it's not me this week. <laughs> and every time I would get so upset about it, Maya would say, but babe, you, what, what, you don't have anything to do with that. I'd say, but they're saying, and you know, it's not true. You don't know what it's like when people are saying things about And she says, but you're not in it. It has nothing to actually do with you. It has to do with whoever sat down at the computer at that moment. You know, I've been, it's been happening so long. She actually said, whoever's sitting at the typewriter, they're thinking, what <laughs> can we say this week? that's going to sell some stories. It's also why I stopped making as many public appearances with Stedman because I realized that every time there's a new photograph, there's a new story. It's an invitation. It's an invitation. Yeah. You got that too, right? Yeah. Took me a minute. But took, I got it. Takes a minute to get, <laughs> oh, you know what? You know what? I, I picture them. They, you know, they got the pictures on the wall. What do we have this week? What expression do we have? What can we create out of that? Yeah. Who was Maya to you? She was, in many ways, the embodiment in physical form of what this character, which I will talk about later, that I'm now portraying in A Wrinkle in Time, this, this celestial, wise, through millennia, angel woman. So she was um, the mother figure for me. You know, my biological mother didn't have the opportunity to be educated, being raised in the South, being a domestic worker her whole life. She didn't have the opportunities that Maya Angelou um, so fortunately had been exposed to. So my mother couldn't give me what Maya had. I needed a mother like Maya to mentor me through this whole fame process. And so she was my grounding tool for it all. I mean, I, I learned my greatest lessons from her. She was my comfort. She was my um, nurturer. She was my inspiration. She was the person who was saying, you can do it, babe, you can do it. And she'd say, take it 
all the way. <laughs> and then she would point to the stars, take it all the way, go all the way. So, and even now, when something goes right, very right, and something goes very wrong, her spirit abides with mine. And I verbally call on her. Out loud. Out loud. Like when I woke this morning, I said, Maya, I'm going to be doing this interview with Gwyneth. <laughs> Show up. <laughs> and here she is. And here she is. Yes. I mean, Maya, I'm going to be, because you know why? Because I feel that there is a responsibility that comes when you are speaking to uh, millions of people. There's a responsibility that comes with that. You owe that some thought. You you owe not to just be. It's why I'm very, very careful on social media. I don't think that it's the best forum for expressing, you know, the deepest parts of yourself. And so I'm careful about what I say and what I don't say and how it can be interpreted. Because I think words matter and have such great power, lasting power. And so I think about it. I think about it. Just as before I would do every show, I would empty myself and say, let me be a vessel for something bigger than I be, I am because I know I'm speaking to lots of crazy people <laughs> <laughs> who can interpret whatever we're doing or saying in whatever way they want. So let the crazies hear this carefully. And lots of people who are in need and lots of people who are just open to hear what you have to say and some people who are not. So let me be a vessel for something that's bigger than myself. And when you say there's a responsibility in it, what does that mean to you? What does it mean to me? It means that I think um, every person who comes to earth has a responsibility, as I was saying, this, this, to, to seek the truest, highest expression. And the key word here is true. Responsibility is how do you remain how do you not just speak the truth, but how are you the truth? The responsibility is to show up in that which is the most authentic, truthful version of yourself. That's that's how I see it. And I think that, you know, it's when you were talking about Maya Angelou and what she was to you, without sounding completely cheesy, that's what you are to so many of us. Well, that would mean, that would mean what would that mean if I could open, just if I could see that, I don't know, that would make, I wouldn't be able to bear that. I, I couldn't, I don't know what that would mean. I don't. It's true though. Okay. I don't know what that would mean. And you somehow gave us all permission to seek that. Mm. Well, that's good. <laughs> well, that's a good life. That space wasn't there for us before you named it and you gave mm. us all permission. Really? Yeah. I'm going to think about that. Okay. After you leave, it's going to take me a minute. That's fine. I would say though, that, um, this thing of, Oh mom, it's so simple that the reason why people's lives get so complicated is because you're trying to live it for somebody else other than yourself. That is the key. Make it simple. When you just start doing it for yourself. And that is not a selfish thing. That is an honorable thing. It's an honorable thing. And I remember in the 90s, I had Cheryl Richardson on, who is a life coach. And she did, um, 
she, we were doing this little test in the audience and asking women, where are you on the list of 10, your 10 priorities, the 10 top things that you prioritize? Most of the women in the audience, also around 92, 93, did not have themselves on the list or they were at the bottom of the list. And when Cheryl said out loud, you should be first on the list, they started booing in the Oprah show audience. And I had to say, I remember it so vividly. I'm saying, hey, we're not Jerry Springer here, y'all. We don't <laughs> boo our guests. They started booing. Wow. With the idea that you should put yourself first on the list. So in the mid 90s, people were like, are you kidding? And the women are shouting out, you must not have children. She doesn't have children. So how does she know? And so I said, she didn't say abandon your children and leave them in the street. She said, put yourself on the list so you can better take care of your children. Well, that principle of not being selfish, but self-aware enough to honor the vessel, the vehicle that is your body, that is your way on earth, your presence here on earth in this dense form, I mean, there is nothing more important than that, because what you give and feed to yourself that makes yourself whole creates an opportunity to have your cup overflow to, 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 to give more to other people. And you can only do that coming from you can only do that at your best when you've come from you're coming from a whole place. You're, you're whole. Right. Do you feel whole? Yeah, I really do. Are you happy? Oh, Happiness is not even a word I use for myself because happiness seems temporal. It feels temporary. And th this thing happens and I'm so happy. I'm so happy. No, I, uh, it is far, far, far deeper than happiness. I can, I can get happy about things, but I'm generally in such a state of quiet contentment beneath the surface of whatever it is. And, and, and a sense of peace about things, that happiness is sort of like an afterthought. Of course I'm happy. Of course I'm happy because I'm just, I'm basically at peace and content. And I've, I've talked to 37,000, over 37,000 people, but I've also listened. I see the commonality in my experiences with other people. I live a very luxurious, highly elevated life. I have always loved beauty and being surrounded by beauty. So to now be in a place that I live in a place that's like a park to me. I think it's kind of a shithole. <laughs> uh, the fact that that has happened. Okay. Well, before I had oak trees surrounded by, you know, flower gardens, I lived in a little apartment in Baltimore and I couldn't afford any art. And I would go to the art museum and I would buy postcards of Monet and Manet and, you know, Picasso and Klimt. And I would frame the postcards on the wall. That's amazing. And I would, to me, that was, that was my art. And then when I could start to like buy little pieces of like Burton sketches or, you know, move into the world where you could actually spend money on some art. I was like, like the very first imp important piece and the piece is now still is the most important, though not most expensive in my home is a picture of a, 
slave woman on the auction block uh, with her daughter. And when you come in my house, that's the first thing you see. And that is the grounding painting for me. And then there's the first major piece I bought, like back in 1988. Who painted and, it? And so a guy named Harry Roseland, who was a, a 19th century genre painter who painted a lot of black folks. But that woman who I've named Anna and her daughter, Sarah, I don't even know their story, but I know their story. And one of the other things that I treasure in my home, I have documents from slave plantations that have the names and ages and prices of slaves. And sometimes when I feel like there've been times when I've been in crisis or felt like things weren't going the way I wanted them to go, I will go into that room and I will speak their names out loud. I will speak their names out loud. Douglas and Jenna and Carrie and Sarah and Anna and their ages and their prices and remind myself of how far I have come. And no crisis seems that much of a crisis (laughs) after you look at the names, the ages, the prices of people who were before you, who made the, who who made this way possible. So that's actually how I live my life. It sounds like, but it really is. It It really, it, it really is. And it didn't, you know, I say this to my my beautiful um, South African daughters, you know, when we're around the table, you all should actually pay attention. The reason you should pay attention is because I was lucky enough to get you when you were 12 years old. And I have no agenda other than your highest well-being. I don't need you as a reflection of me. I don't have that parenting thing of you've got to do well because it makes me look good. Or I, I just I just have your highest well-being is my only agenda. That's the only thing I'm looking out for. And so anything I ask or anything I tell, so I have really, you know, great relationships with them. That's crazy. You know, it just occurred to me when you said that, I mean, when people talk about or strive to be a mother, Mm -hmm. like that to me Mm -hmm. is the ideal characteristic of a mother. I just want what's, what's the highest for you. And it's so difficult to not get attached to, to all not, the other exactly, stuff. Exactly. And not yeah. project and not see your own shortcomings in your kid and get triggered by it. Mm-hmm. And that and want you to be something that's going to reflect back to me. So it's, it's a good thing. It's very, very tough. And we were all raised so much in that kind of enmeshed way with our parents. And mm-hmm. that is the most profound. It's so funny because you're technically not a mother. Mm-hmm. And that is the most profound and insightful sentence about mothering. I mean, in, in terms of you just really crystallize something for me there. Oh, I'm glad. It's one of the reasons why I could do it from the age of 12, the way I've done it. But I also was, an, was self-aware enough that even when there was all this pressure to get married and you should have children and even from Gail, like you should get married <laughs> and you should have children so that our children should grow up together. Well, that's not a reason I got to tell you. <laughs> Would be nice, but not right. a reason. Talking about the intention behind yes. something. <laughs> I didn't think, and Maya had said this to me, uh, that her mother was not a good mother for small children. That she was raised by her grandmother. was one of the reasons we uh, connected so well, because I was raised by my grandmother the first six years. She was raised by her grandmother in the South. And her mother was not a good mother for small young children, but her mother was a good, great mother 
for her as a young adult woman. Her mother could relate to her as a young adult woman. And so she later forgave her mother for not being there for her as a child. And they became, you know, really strong, had a really strong bond till the end. But I don't think I would have been a good mother for baby children. Hmm. Baby children. It's hard. Because <laughs> I, I need you to talk to me. Right. And I need you to tell me what's wrong. I can't just figure it out. And I am was always, I knew that about myself, always better with kids once they turn two and a half, three. I had a real resonance with them. And Gail was like, oh, you love babies. And I was like, oh, babies are fine. So I don't think that was for me. Yeah. Even when people were saying, but you could have your own nursery and you could build it in Harpo. It didn't feel like it was for me. So I was searching even for that. What is the higher ground for me? Where will I be able to find my instinct for nurturing and caring and support for other people? Where will that show up for me and how will that show up for me? We'll have more with Oprah in a minute. In the meantime, let's talk about one of our partners. If you've ever come to Goop.com, you know that sleep hygiene is essential. Sleep is when our bodies unpack and recover from the stresses of the day, and not getting enough of it can be detrimental to our health. An essential part of any clean sleep routine is perfectly crisp yet soft bedding. You all know exactly what I'm talking about. At Goop, we focus on GOT-certified organic cotton sheeting, which means that no harmful chemicals were used in their creation. A company that's setting the gold standard in the industry, and my personal favorite, is Bolin Branch. They use 100% pure organic cotton, and everything is ethically made, meaning that every farmer and factory worker is treated fairly every step of the way. If this all weren't enough, the sheets are incredibly soft. Unlike too many things in life, they only get better with age. The more you wash them, the cozier they get. So Bolin Branch has a little clean sleep challenge for you. Take 30 days to sleep on their incredibly soft organic cotton bedding or return it for a full refund, no questions asked. Head over to bolinbranch.com and use promo code GOOP for $50 off your first set of sheets. Okay. Let's get back to my chat with Oprah. I want to ask you, so I don't take up your whole day, but I do want to talk to you about two things. One is this seismic change in what's happening with regards to women in this country Mm -hmm. and the Me Too movement. And why now? Why do you think now? Well, you can look at any given moment. One of my favorite books on earth if you're going to be a human being, you need to read A New Earth by Eckhart Tolle. Is someone writing this down? All these books? <laughs> okay, you have, to be, you, you have to read A New Earth by Eckhart Tolle. Okay. And the first chapter is a little slow and you think, oh, what is this really? By the time you get to the second chapter about the ego and the third chapter about the roles that you play versus your ego, and then the fifth chapter on the pain body that so many people carry, you begin to get it. And what he says is, how do you know you're supposed to be experiencing any given thing in any moment? The reason you know is because you're experiencing that thing. So if it's happening, it's supposed to be happening. Right. And so how you manage that 
is understanding that there is nothing showing up that isn't supposed to teach you something about your own personal life. And it's teaching you about your own personal life to the direct extent that you are in, involved in it. And it's teaching us something about our entire consciousness. So is the thing that I, I have come to know for sure is that there is no experience that you can have personally or that we can have as a body of consciousness, this culture, that isn't here to help strengthen or elevate us. Mm. That you can use everything to take you to higher ground. And so this moment has been coming for a very long time. That's what I was trying to say in my Golden Globes speech, that I wasn't trying to run for any office. I was just trying to say, and I wanted to be able to say to the Me Too movement, proud of where we are, what we're doing, but you need to know you didn't get here alone, that there are those who endured, suffered, didn't speak because they couldn't speak, because they, if t- they knew that to speak would mean I won't be able to feed my children, and who've come before you that made this path possible. So it's been coming for a very long time. So that's what the Reese Taylor story but was. But why was. does it have traction? Because I think, you know, I look back and I think throughout, you know, modern media, women have come forward about this person or that person or X, Y, and Z. And it has traction for the same reason that the kids in Florida now have traction. Look at how many people had to die in order for that to get traction. Yeah. I thought it was going to happen for sure at Sandy Hook. That was my first, that was actually my first thought when I heard there had been a shooting and five-year-olds had been killed. I thought this will be the thing. This will be the one that breaks it down. This will be the breakthrough. This will get us to change. And it's only because it happened with Harvey, I believe, because of faces like your own. They were known people that people had some kind of connection to, something. They, there was a resonance, a feeling, a vibration, whatever you want to call it. That's number one. Number two, it had been coming. It had been coming. It had been coming. It had been coming with Cosby and nothing happened. It had been coming with Bill O'Reilly. It had been coming. It had been coming. Even with the president of the United States, where people can hear the Access Hollywood tape and yet nothing happens. It had been coming. It had been coming. And so that moment was the moment where it all crystallized. And it's just like everybody's so excited, as as am I, about um, the phenomenon that is a Black Panther. Black Panther couldn't have happened 10 years ago. Right. The way it happened recently. The reason it's happened the way it has is because in order for phenomena to be a phenomena, everything has to line up. It means the culture, the zeitgeist for this particular moment in time is ready and available and open to hear that message. And so it took woman after woman after woman, unheard, unspoken, and now some faces come forward that we recognize and have some resonance with. My God, if it could happen to them then this thing that I've been hiding within myself that I was so ashamed of, that I felt guilty about because I'm just a waitress or a nurse or a clerk or a secretary or an assistant or whatever. Wow, if it could happen to them. 
that really means something. So the resonance happens because there's been enough puncturing of the of the of, of the veil in the culture that, yeah. that that finally is large enough for people to hear it. Now I, I will use this philosophy from my show days, <laughs> but even as a young reporter, I started to figure this out that. Um, I, I, I hated being in the newsroom. It just felt like I was in the wrong space in my life. And I was always asking God, where am I supposed to be really? Where am I supposed to be really? But now I realize, oh, I needed that. So as a young reporter in Baltimore, I started to notice I was this, I was the street, I was assigned to go out on the street whenever anything happened. So I'm just literally in the car with the photographer. We're, so I'd get sent to the ambulance. I was, you know, accidents and everything. And there came a time where, when I first started at 22, if there was a drunk driving accident, that would be front of the news. After a while, you'd have to kill more than one person. You'd have to kill more than two people. A child had to be involved. And then there had to be more children before it could make the front of the news. It would go further and further and further back in the news because it was so, just so common. And I remember one night I was working late and there was a school bus accident were seven children coming from choir practice doing Christmas carols were killed by a drunk driver. That made the front of the news. I thought, oh, that's where, that's where we are now. You've got to be seven kids coming from choir practice singing Christmas carols to get people's attention. And I, I started to learn from that, that the culture becomes numb. They can't hear it. They can't hear it. They can't hear it. And then finally, there is a massive of enough number, a critical mass that people can hear it, that people can hear it. So I'm certainly willing to support and get behind these kids. These kids in, in Florida feel like the new freedom riders to me. And that's the difference between Sandy Hook and this. Because those were little kids. These, these young men and women have voices and they have power. Well, though their parents tried to have power, but they tried to do it in such a diplomatic, quiet way that they were shut down. Can you believe that the parents of little baby five-year-olds and six-year-olds go to Congress and cannot be heard? It makes no sense. But that's why right. I'm, I'm willing to, I want to get behind these kids who feel like the new day is on the horizon. The new day is on the horizon. So for this moment in time where women can be heard and this moment in time where the young voices can be heard, the reason why it excites me so much about the young people in Florida is because they're going to take the energy and power of that pain and turn it into something miraculous. Mm. And I know what that means when you, when you use those deaths to actually turn it into something, you know, those, those, those 17 people who were killed, as I believe all people come, you know, all death is here to show us more about how to live. I felt this after nine 11 and then we, we had it for a moment and then we lost it. Those people were sacrificial angels allowing us to look at ourselves in a different way, our country and our culture and the way we operated in the world. And the same thing is true. For this moment in time, I believe, for the children in Florida who are rising up, who mm -hmm. said enough, enough. And that's what it takes. It takes yeah. critical mass. It takes, and, and I, you know, I, th I thought it would have been 
the problem with Las Vegas is there were people from all different backgrounds. Okay, so it's 58. So I was wondering, is it the number? Is it the number? Do you have to get such a mass amount that, okay, people pay attention? But I think it is because these children have grown up in the age where shooter on site and practicing for, you know, for such a thing to happen has been a part of their regular lives and and they're they're sick of it they've had enough it's a culture of enough yeah it's a culture of enough Everywhere. which is the same thing for the women same thing for the women do you have any practical advice this is something that we're talking about a lot in the office right now because so many women when the me too movement started it's sort of everybody everybody i don't know i don't have one friend one colleague mm-hmm. one school mother who wasn't either sexually harassed, sexually abused, molested, Mm -hmm. not one. Mm -hmm. It's it's touched everybody. Obviously there's a spectrum and there's a lot now where women were all really talking about our experiences and obviously there's healing in that. But I think we're all a little bit stuck on how do you heal from sexual abuse Uh, Well, that is a process, but I will tell you this, knowing that you're not alone is a part of the big healing. I remember the first time I realized that I wasn't the only kid who had been sexually molested. And the first time I realized it, I was doing a talk show where somebody was telling their story. And I was like dumbfounded. I didn't know what to do. That is my story. This is, I could cry right now. I mean, I was like, that has happened to someone else. I thought I was the only one. And at the first time I heard it, I was in Baltimore and I didn't have the courage to speak out on television about it. Mm-hmm. I had a co-host and the girl's telling the story and I'm like, that sounds like me. That sounds like me. It was her uncle. Oh my gosh. She was the same age. Oh my God. So afterwards I went into the green room and I said to her, the same thing happened to me. And she said, why didn't you say something? And I said, I'd never heard that it ever happened to anybody before. And I don't know. I don't know. But the truth was I was scared, first of all. I was 22 or 23 at the time. And that's when I started to realize, oh, this this has happened to somebody before. So when it happened on television, when I was the master of my own show, I said, I'm not going to let this moment pass. And I said, me too, on the air to that girl. And she was like, what? You too? Yes. And then it started this whole thing. But the power comes in being able to say, first of all, it did happen. Because a lot of women tell themselves it was something else. And then I just wrote up what I know for sure for the magazine about this. At the time, I was being sexually harassed in my years in Baltimore. And there were several years where I had a boss who just did. It just was a part of the thing. And I didn't say anything and I don't hold any guilt about it. And I also don't hold any guilt about not speaking up as a child. Right. So I would say, you speak up when you feel that you are safe enough to speak up. So you tell and tell and tell until there's someone who will believe you whether you're a child or whether you're an adult, 
and you can get support and feel safe. So the reason I didn't tell as a child when I was being sexually molested by one person than another person is because I knew I would be blamed. I knew that it would somehow turn on me and it would make my life worse. It would make that person then turn on me, the whole family. I didn't know if I'd be harmed. So I didn't feel safe. And I would say to anyone, even now, if you're in an environment where you have a, 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 a situation where you're being harassed, you speak up where you can feel safe to speak up and that you're not going to be retaliated against in a way that is going to cause you more harm. I would speak to that person directly. I think what the Me Too movement has done is given women the power to say, back off. Right. It was interesting for me to see all of the men when this all happened, taking such forensic inventory of how they had behaved and Mm -hmm. every, Mm -hmm. could somebody have construed this the wrong way? Did I say the wrong thing? You know, men who won't be accused of anything, taking inventory well, those are the people way. who are doing the real inventory. Yeah. Like, have I said anything or done anything or have I crossed the line? I'm sure a lot of men have because we live and have lived in a culture that allowed you to cross the line. So lots of lines have been crossed. And now it's up to both women and men to redefine where those lines exactly. are. So I think we're in, in this moment of figuring it out. And that's really okay. Yeah. We're figuring it out. And I don't think we like that as a culture. I think we like things binary. They should be good or bad, right or wrong. That's right. And we're living in a time now where we're having to really embrace the gray areas and explore them and kind of come together and figure out, are we redrawing lines? What does that mean? And it's okay that it feels confusing for a minute. for a minute. But I think that clarity is on the way. And I think that the fact that this movement has given every woman in every part of the globe a deepened and heightened sense of, I can stand up for myself. Right. I can push back without feeling like I'm going to be harmed is an important part of this phase of of the movement. Right. Yeah. But we're on our way. We're We're on on our way way to something bigger. But you know what? It's what's even more important. The sexual harassment, sexual assault. Just like I was accused, and I'm sure, I don't know if you were accused or not, because I I didn't follow it that closely. But I had people online saying, oh, you knew, I knew about Harvey, I should have known. Well, the first of all, I wasn't in this world. I was in Chicago in my own little world. But my point is, is so, so what I knew about Harvey was that Harvey was a bully and that if Harvey's on the phone, you, God, you don't want to take the call because you're going to get bullied in some way. For me, it just meant pushing for some people to be on the show that I didn't want to, and I've already done it. And how many more times do I need to do it? So that's all I knew about Harvey. And was I friendly with Harvey? Yes, I was friendly with Harvey. Was I you know, in association with him for, you know, the the Butler movie that we had done. Yes, I was. But I, of course, I didn't know any of this was going on. But what I do know is that what this moment is here to show us, what I do question for myself, 
is I was willing to put up with the bullying thing. I was willing to put up with, okay, I'll take the call. Okay, I'll be in the, the, okay, I'll do that. And so it's caused me to question, and I think where this movement will eventually lead us to, is not accepting any kind of behavior that disparages you as a human being, period. You know, why am I willing to be... Why am I willing to put up with an asshole is the big question. <laughs> and we'll accept you as an asshole, but we won't tolerate other things. But yeah, you can throw phones and you can call people, you jerks, and you can do all the nasty stuff, but we're willing to put up with. So I'm hoping it leads us to a better way of all human beings treating each other. And that this moment, this moment in the movement is leading us towards that. Saying not only am I not going to take your sexual harassment, I'm not going to take any of your bullshit. Period. You know, I think we're on our way there. I think we're, but as I said, we're figuring it out. And when you were acting, did you experience any of that or was it only in the newsroom? Like, did you have any oh, no, sort I've of never had any, any kind of, you know, on set? On set. No, because you know why? I mean, just as you became Gwyneth Paltrow, when you have the power to speak up for yourself, he's not going to say anything to me. I didn't when he did it to me. I wasn't Gwyneth Paltrow yet. Yeah. And that's what was so terrifying. So, so let me ask you this. Were you triggered by all of the, when this first started to come out, was there a part of you that was like, whoa? Very. And it's been months of me trying to process through it all. Mm -hmm. I think that I came out about Harvey early in the mm -hmm. trajectory of this whole story. And I didn't feel safe to do it, but I felt I had a responsibility to do it. Mm -hmm. And it was clear to me, you know, when it happened to me, it, it only happened one time I confronted him and he never tried anything like that again, but he was a bully. So about work things, mm -hmm. about he was shaming, he was really hard on me. He, and then he was incredibly generous and would send me a private plane somewhere. And it was kind of right. a typical abusive relationship. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that I have even, I hadn't started to process through because m so much of my acting career and so many of the incredible highs and lows as well were associated with him mm -hmm. and Miramax. And, you know, I've had to, it's brought up a lot of stuff lately, a lot of abuse from my own childhood that I haven't reconciled, which is why mm -hmm. I was asking you about that. And then it's all kind of, you know, when you have these moments in your life where there's all these confluence of events. And I started to think, gosh, I wonder if that's why I stepped away from acting really when I had my child. Cause I had always told myself the story. I lost the passion for it. I'm not sure why. Mm -hmm. Then I had my daughter and I wanted to be home. And now I'm sort of trying to put the pieces together and think, did this predominant relationship mm -hmm. in my professional life lead me to not want to do it anymore. Well, it certainly had an influence. I mean, certainly, you know, going back to this whole thing of energy and vibration and stuff, you know, you know how you feel when you have to be in a space with someone who is an agitating force and what that means to have to work with that. And you reach a point in your life where you think, I don't want to have to deal with that. I do know that that's how I felt every time I had to be like, oh God, you got to get on the phone with, you got to be around, you got to deal with that. Yeah. So I'm sure that that is a component 
uh, an element of it because if it, you know, is a purely joyful experience where right. you just get to open up and be your full self all the time, who doesn't want to embrace that? Right. But if there's, you know, agitation and negative energy there and there's some dark side stuff in there. And so when I feel safe, you know, that's why it's when I talk about speaking up, I'm talking about particularly for children, because you can tell someone and tell someone. And then, I, I mean, I've done so many interviews with kids who told and then they were kicked out of the house and they were abandoned and they were. So you got to find a place where you feel safe. That's why this moment in time where women who didn't know what was going to happen had the courage because right. that's what courage is. Courage is that moment when you, you're scared, but you leap anyway. Yeah. You're scared, but you're going to stand out there anyway. You're going to say it anyway because you've had enough. Yeah. You've had enough. And also I had had enough for potentially my daughter, this whole next generation of mm-hmm. women. I just thought this is not, this is not us anymore. We can't do this yeah. anymore. And, and what I do know for sure, what I do believe really in, in, in the deepest part of my spirit is that our daughters, your daughter, my girls, oh no, no, no. They're not, they're, no, they're, absolutely. They're, 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 they are oh, not please. going this way. No. Oh no, Definitely. honey child. No, uh-uh, uh-uh. I see my girls now. They're just not going to take it. They're like, what? You let somebody say that to you when you were 22? Uh, Yeah, I did in order to keep my job. And I would try to walk around the other way and hold my head down at the desk and do that. That is not going to happen. That's over. That's over. So in A Wrinkle in Time. Yeah. You play. I play Mrs. Witch. I didn't grow up with the book. You didn't grow up with the book. I didn't grow up with the book. I don't know anything about it. So I'm so excited. It's a story of this wonderful adventure of this young girl whose father uh, is a scientist and has been experiencing with how to touch hands with the universe and ends up being zapped out into outer space. And she loses her father and he's been missing for four years. And these three angelic forces come to help her find her father who's out there and being taken over by the dark side. And uh, it's, it's her journey to find her father, but the journey is also about discovering herself and learning to look at herself as an empowered being girl in school where kids are teasing you and all that. So it's about that. And I get to play the wise Mrs. W H I C H and Reese is Mrs. Watsit and Mindy K- Reese Witherspoon and Mindy Kalen is Mrs. Who. So they're the three wise women who help her along the journey. And mine is a millennial force who is a combination for me in my mind of my two favorite mentors, Glinda the Good Witch and Maya Angelou. So it's the embodiment of the wisdom of Maya and the magic of Glinda. And you know, it's opening in a couple of days. So and I'm really excited And why did you say yes? I said yes because Ava DuVernay is a visionary filmmaker who I had come to know after shooting The Butler with David Oyelowo, who handed me a DVD of her movie, Middle of Nowhere. I watched the movie. I liked the movie. She shot a movie, made the movie for $200,000. And I Googled her. I saw this lovely woman in dreads with her glasses, pretty warm brown face, smiling. I thought, I'm going to be her friend. I am going to be her friend. 
And I ended up having a, a luncheon here just so I could meet her. I had a Mother's Day luncheon and said, everybody bring your mother just so I could meet her. Because I wasn't going to like call her up and go, I'm going to be your friend. <laughs> so I had her here. And uh, we started talking. I ended up going uh, on uh, as a producer uh, for Selma. And I just, I feel about her the way I believe Maya felt about me. She's this this young visionary who has lots of things to say in the world. And I could feel her essence and her spirit rising and her directorial abilities and her advocacy abilities. And I just wanted, I wanted to, I want to support her in every way. And she needs you. And she doesn't need me, but we become really good friends. So this <laughs> is the thing that happened. She was talking about this movie she was doing. And I said, oh, well, you know, you're going to be filming in New Zealand. I want to come. I am going to take two weeks off and I'm going to come to New Zealand because I'd been there before and I didn't really get to explore. So I'm going to come to New Zealand. I'm going to watch you film and just hang out. And she said, well, if you're going to do that, I wanted to ask you, would you read for this role of Mrs. Witch? Would you, would you, why don't you just act? And I said, all right, I'll take a look at it. And when I read it, I thought, well, I am Mrs. Witch. Who else were you going to get to play Mrs. Witch? I think I am Mrs. Witch. And um, so that's that's how that's how it came to be. Do you like acting? I You're lo- really, really good at it. Well, thank you. I love you as an I'm actress. Not, I don't feel that I'm great at it. I don't feel that. Really? No, I really don't. The I, color I think, purple? I thought I was great in the color purple. God. You know, because I was carried by passion. You are so good. Oh, my in that color movie. purple story is the best story on earth. I mean, I never wanted anything more than I wanted to color purple. And it is was the embodiment of allowing uh, the allowingness of something to come into your life. I never wanted anything more than I wanted to color purple and have not since wow. allowed myself to want anything that badly because I know how not to want it that badly. I know that when you want it so badly that you hurt for it, that you're not going to get it. That it's only through the disallowing of it. When I learned this lesson that not to hold anything too tightly, don't hold anything too tightly. Just wish for it, want it, let it come from the intention of real truth for you, and then let it go. And if it's supposed to be yours, it will show up and it won't show up until you stop holding it so mm. tightly. And that's the way you, you, you live your life. And that's my deep prayer for everyone who's listening to us, that the forces that we call God, nature, universal energy, divine light, by every name that is called God in the universe, my prayer is that that force field holds you in the palm of its hands and never squeezes you too tightly. Amazing. Amazing. <laughs> I, think we're, I think we're good. <laughs> I think we're good. Hey, hey, hey. hey I've hey. cried four times during <laughs> hey, this. Hey, 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 hey. Podcast goopity goop, goop, goop. <laughs> Podcast goopity goop. We did it. Goop on, goop on. Hey, hey. Oh, my God. Goop this has loud. been such, like, one of the biggest honors of my life to talk oh, to you. thank you for saying that. I just adore you. Thank you for joining my conversation with Oprah. I trust you already have regular doses of Oprah in your life. 
whether you are a devotee to O Magazine, Oprah.com is your homepage, you're reading her latest book in your book club, still watching her Golden Globe speech on repeat, or planning to see A Wrinkle in Time seven times. I hope hearing her today added to the magic. It will long be a high for me. If you liked what you heard, please hit subscribe and tell your friends. See you next week.